0: You're listening to The MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: So we have to to create something that allows us to proactively assess our life in three uh, sensor generation we will be at fidelity where where we can actually predict proactively and things like an heart attack
0: i'm mark Pawlowski, founder of mex and that was christian lindholm my guest on today's show and we were talking about some of the things that he's been working on around health and wearables both themes uh, which i know resonate with the mex community What's particularly interesting about Christian's views on these themes is where they come from. And it was one of the reasons that I was keen to talk to him on the podcast. So Christian's involvement in mobile goes way back, back to the mid nineties when he and his team were responsible for developing the Navi key interface at Nokia. Now, this was the combination of up and down arrows and a confirmation button, the Navi key, which could be dynamically remapped in software to whatever function was needed by the user at that particular moment in time. Now, like so many things which go on to become ubiquitous, it seems kind of obvious with hindsight, but at the time it was one of the defining characteristics of that Nokia user experience and it coincided with a period of extraordinary growth, which saw Nokia go on to dominate the mobile phones business for years to come. And they shipped hundreds of millions of phones with this Naviki. Christian was also there at the start of many of the social media apps that we take for granted on mobile these days. So while he was at Nokia, he worked on something called LifeBlog, which is a service way ahead of its time in 2004, And then he went on to lead mobile services at Yahoo as well. After that, it was on to the design agency Fjord as a managing partner. And this was during a time when Fjord grew from a little studio of 30-odd people to a few hundred people. And later was acquired by Accenture, the professional services firm, which, as many of you will know, has become a bit of an ongoing trend among uh, design agencies within this space Um, to this day. These days, uh, Christian's got a couple of main interests. He's the CEO of Koru, which is a user interface platform for wearables. And there's Vertical, which is an accelerator based in Finland, uh, which specializes in working with startups in digital health. So uh, suffice to say, there's some depth to Christian's perspective on experience design, which we we go on to talk about, and why he's now focusing his attention on these emerging areas of wearables and health and and how digital can play a role uh, in helping to improve that for users all around the world. So as ever, there are show notes with links to all of the things that Christian has been involved with and all of the other references that we discussed during the conversation, and you can find them at com in the podcast section. Here we go. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Now, I'm at a bit of a loss as to where to start because without wanting to make you feel too old, You have a long, long history in this space, and there are many potential places, I guess, we could get started. Um, But let's perhaps go right back to the beginning and look at that moment where you first began to consider yourself to be an experienced designer. Was that a defined moment for you? Can you recall a point at which you felt that way? So...
1: On, on the one hand, I, I never really felt like a designer because I've had had the privilege immediately in my career to work with some some fantastic designer uh, designers, and and so I, I more consider myself as a sort of a, a shaper, innovator, uh, coordinator. Uh, you know, doing things that, that is the sort of missing glue and, and, uh, and that has, has then resulted in, in some, some quite interesting innovations. But, but I've always believed in, in the power of the team and, and, and I've had the privilege to work with some fabulously talented people in my career.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's one of the interesting things about some of the work that you have done. And yeah, you know, perhaps some of our younger listeners to the podcast won't be familiar with the work that you did on those early interface uh, systems for, for Nokia back in the day. But I guess at, at that point, the idea of experience design as a, a discipline um, in its own right was perhaps not quite as well established as it was now. And it was very much about those kind of Team efforts um, and the idea of beginning to put user-centered design at the heart of that process to try and achieve something a little bit different within what I guess at the time was known as the, the mobile telecom space. Yeah, that that was all quite novel at the time. I mean, perhaps you could just set the scene for people a, a little bit. You know, on that that first work that you did around the Nokia interface design. What kind of industry were you working in at that point? What what was the uh, the, the feeling that in the the business? This was
1: back in in uh, in ninety five, and I joined joined uh, out of, of uh, university. I was a, a researcher at London Business School as a Center for Design Management, and, and and joined into to Nokia, not knowing anything about uh, phones and. And one of the first tasks I, I got was was really to, to think about how can we evolve the 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 uh, early classic the 2110, but then also look at, at how could we evolve uh, uh, and make a make an entry level uh, GSM phone, and 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 out of of, uh, of some experiments uh, uh, came a, a concept that then. Uh, was called NaviKey, and, and this NaviKey uh, interface uh, was built upon an, a very simple idea that, that if you remove the number of keys on a phone, you will uh, make it look more simple and inviting to use. Uh, but then, at the same time, I thought that well, we have to maximize the number of keys which are universally recognized by all people around the world, and and so so I assumed that most people knew knew what, what arrows would do because they've had volume controls on remotes. Uh, I assumed that people knew what what uh, a key with a C on it would do because people had used calculators, and and so. So with those three keys named, then uh, one key was was left as a mystery key, and that became the Navi key. And and what that did was what it changed context. So it it was whatever the user needed it to be, and um, and and uh, people. Who we tested it on early on actually thought it was a smart key and it was intelligent and it could predict what we were do what I wanted to do as a user and and uh, and that system worked incredibly well. it was very robust as the industry evolved to to be able to handle new features without introducing a lot of complexity. and it was so successful that, Somewhere around eight or nine percent of human population uh, learned to write text messages and call on that invention.
0: So, going into that project, did you anticipate that it would have as significant an impact as it did?
1: One couldn't imagine that. We we didn't have any ideas that mobile phones would be so popular. It it was probably 97, 98 when we actually thought that now. Now this idea of, of having a mobile phone is really going to be a, 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 a really a sort of omnipresent object in people's lives. So at that time, it it, it was was still uh, a very sort of humble, earnest effort to to try to make uh, telephony accessible and simple. And it, it was simple. I... I, I we had a prototype i tested it myself with with i think remember 15 users and and the only one who didn't really get it was uh, was my my at that time mo- mother in law who was a, a you know a, a well educated lawyer but she just didn't understand how to use it and it was interesting that that uh, m- almost a third of the users made error calls so so you know telephone was used and the, the primary purpose is to make a phone call and and they immediately made an error with it. But it was interesting that they realized their error and and then they didn't repeat it. The, and 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 that somehow taught the users uh, the system. So we could never out that that initially error call and and uh, uh, but but with a little error, you know trial and error users. Learned it and, and 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 loved it.
0: So at that time, I mean, how much of a formalized process was there around that user-centered approach? I mean you say that you tested it out with fifteen trial users, which these days within many big companies within the consumer electronics course would be you know, par for the course or actually a pretty small scale study. But um yeah, I remember back to that time within the industry and just how new some of these concepts around involving users and getting them to be part of the design process were for a business that was still very much dominated by an engineering and a technology centric culture so was that something which was um, new to the work that, that you were doing or were you able to build on some existing approaches like that w- within Nokia uh,
1: yes absolutely so so we, we were quite far already at that time So, so already I think Two or three years before I joined, we had done usability tests for for what became the 2110 in in the US and and Japan and 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 uh, and this was, I think, almost before uh, or around the time that that Jacob Nielsen used wrote his Usability Engineering book. So so at that time, you know, we were already practicing that type of of, of activity, and it became you know a standard practice and 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 uh, and of course our uh, usability engineers and scientists also tested the concept it wasn't just me but i wanted to have my hands dirty and i tested it myself with selected users that i knew had never made a phone call before on a mobile phone and and so so we were you know very diligent and and very passionate about you know the authenticity and 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 of course when i had tested it myself on users i could be very convincing to the management that i you know i said that well i think this concept works i've tested it so it it was you know in that way science based and then the engineers brought their own reports and 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 uh, and and the the psychologists brought their reports to 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 back it up with with more figures
0: well and i guess the the proof was in the pudding with that because that Interface, I suppose, arrived at the start of what ended up being a really quite rapid um, period of growth for Nokia to a point where, as is difficult to believe these days, given what has has happened since, they really were the dominant force within the the mobile telecoms area and within the emerging area of of smartphones as well. Um, And, you know, in a few short years, that obviously changed considerably. Um, I mean, clearly, we could spend a lot of time reminiscing over you know, the, the, uh, the early days of, of mobile. But I wanted to look, um, before we move on uh, and talk about other things, just at that, that last period where I guess, um, as you were leaving Nokia, that transition was in full swing. the the balance between the market being dominated by feature phones and the growth of smartphones uh, and touch devices beginning to to arrive on the market. Um, What was your feeling at that time having had that legacy in i guess key driven interfaces uh, about what was happening with touch and, and where that market might go so so
1: i actually left in in 2005 because i i felt that that some of that creative spark had had been lost so so i felt that okay time to to move on i slightly before that i had had gotten interested in in personal content and and uh, with my team built a product called nokia Life blog which which was a timeline of your life where you could sort of browse back and look at at the uh, different type of media combined into one timeline and um, and so but before that i had had kicked off what uh, became the the series 60 ui and, and, and the first incarnation of, of what many considered the, the, the smartphone. Um, and and the, the, the big belief I had was that the phone should be one hand operated. And I was quite adamantly against operating phones with pens because I, I thought pens were fiddly and, uh, and, and so I wasn't a big proponent of, of touchscreens. And particularly not the uh, resistive touchscreens, and and back then still uh, capacitive touch was was uh, very very uh, fringe technology, and uh, and uh, and if it wasn't for for uh, for Steve Jobs and Tony Fadell, they would never really have, have you know capacitive touch would probably never have taken off because it was more expensive it was unproven it didn't work with gloves you couldn't use a pen and uh, and the uh, capacitive touch sensor was was uh, quite inaccurate so you couldn't actually address very small small uh, areas with it and and so it had all the different type of disciplines against it uh, against the technology uh, so, so, you know, usability shot, shot it down, uh, sourcing shot it down, uh, uh, purchasing shot it down, engineering shot it down, uh, usability, you know, with, with gloves and, and, and that would shoot it down. So,
0: And what so, was it within capacitive touch that you saw that you felt had potential? I, I
1: didn't see it. No, no, I didn't see it. I, I never saw any potential incapacity. I, 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 uh, I didn't i i on the contrary only saw that i didn't like resistive i didn't see touch as as uh, as the sort of future of the phone obviously i saw that that of course screen is more valuable than keys so so yes something has to to push out the keys which obviously is a screen but but the the, the capacitive touch was was uh, was after my my contribution to phones.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, Nokia were quite um, slow in embracing that in Series sixty. You know, I remember for some time models continued to emerge which either had the combination of key-driven input and uh, resistive screens or, or resistive screens uh, on their own. And uh, as we know, the, the rest is history. Devices like the iPhone with its capacitive touch went on to become the dominant part of the market. Um, but was there anything you know, in those those final days when you were there working on those kind of projects which, looking back, um, you regret of not being able to, to act on uh, faster or to do differently that you feel would have enabled uh, nokia to continue um you know to have that sort of preeminence within the industry
1: well well i i worked on 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 a, 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 a absolutely lovely lovely concept which which was uh, was a bit like a butterfly so you press the button and it opened up like a butterfly and it had two screens so if one any sort of uh, very, how to say, research-oriented persons listening to the podcast, you know, if they Google my name and Yari and yes, and Hannu Pirskan, and they'll find some, some patents that we filed around that, that uh, concept. And we built a very sophisticated user interface around that, that sort of folded touchscreen device. And that was probably the, the, the sort of best future looking concept that that I worked on uh, uh, late in the sort of uh, when I was still responsible for for interfaces uh, but but it never materialised in any other way than than as a as a sort of a few patent applications.
0: Well, we'll try and dig out some links to the patents and put them in the show notes so the <laughs> listeners can, can take a look and see what, what might have been. Um, but, but as you say, you also had that interest in the idea of, of life logging and uh, that kind of the emerging area of, of personal content. Uh, and then it was on to Yahoo for a time um, where I'm, I'm guessing you were able to build a little on those interests. So, so yes, I, I, I joined,
1: joined Yahoo because it, it, it was really had a, a, a big, progressive, very talented team of, of, of mobile guys. So, so in, in the sort of 2005, it, it had the, the biggest and the best team in, in the, the sort of internet industry in mobile. And, uh, and, and I, I had a chance to, to then join that and, and, and lead the, the product management of it. And, and that was a, a fantastic time. And many of the guys they they went on to you know build and shape much of of the early phases of of the uh, of the mobile revolution that that uh, that we now you know so much enjoy so so many of the guys have 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 done fantastic things after after the school of yahoo
0: indeed well I mean many of the things that we now take for granted and a de facto within so many digital experiences I remember experiencing for the first time within things like that Nokia LifeBlock software, you know, the idea of keeping a, a geo-coded log of your photographs, for instance, or things that had happened during your day. You know, all of those things were there um, in their early form within things like like LifeBlock um, and and some of those Yahoo products. And you know, looking back now, I, th- I guess we take for granted that these things have always been there. But there was a point when they weren't there and they emerged and were novel at the time and it was an exciting time to be be in the space
1: yes it 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 was 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 fantastic and and then and switching over to, to sort of consulting role and 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 then helping to uh, you know work with clients like like Skype and 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 mobilizing them and and and
0: so this and, was it, the time at uh, fjord was it
1: and, yes and and, uh, and really, we I had worked with, with the, the Fjord team as, as being their biggest client, and, and then and the, the founders brought me on board and, and, and we, we set this mission to to really build this iconic design agency. Mm. And, and and now, under the 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 stewardship of, of Accenture, you know it's nine hundred designer and it is the world's largest service design firm and and it's retained the name. it's retained much of of the culture and and uh, and uh, and it is it is one of these sort of definitive places where a designer should wor- should work at some point in in their their uh, career because they're doing. You know, been doing from the beginning. You know, state-of-the-art work. You know, the the Fjord team worked on the Life blog and and uh, and, and and many other of of these type of, of pioneering pioneering services.
0: What's your feeling about agencies that are in the position that perhaps Fjord was? When you first joined, because when you, I remember when you came on board with Fjord, it was still a relatively small agency. And while you were there, it went through a period of pretty substantial growth and and ultimately was acquired by Accenture. And as you say, has, has gone on and continued to grow. But yeah, we're at this point now within the area of experience design where there are numerous agencies which are being acquired by professional services firms in the way that Accenture acquired Fjord. What is your feeling about the future for independent agencies uh, and the future of that sort of relationship between independent agencies and the larger professional services firms?
1: So, so I think that, the, that there's always a a next big change, and, and I'm actually trying to solve that problem now in, in 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 one of my new new businesses, which is called Vertical. Uh, which is a health accelerator. and and we uh, we exist there to to be a a matchmaker between uh, corporates and startups. and And the dilemma that that the agencies have is that that yes, they can come up with fantastic ideas, but but in the end, ideas are cheap without the Capacity to implement them, and 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 the way you then get, the, get implementation effort is is then to go to these professional services firms, but they are also broken in the way that that you don't get the people, and 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 in the end nothing gets built, you know, in in short time, and and you just simply have to iterate and refine your uh, your product because uh, first it's an idea, then it's a a, an MVP and then it's a, it's a product and then it needs to be a better product. And then once you've done it a better product a few times, then it actually might be a successful product. and and, um, and so you have to have the people and and so our m- my new hypothesis is, is, is really that that if we can create a, a mechanism that that allows for for uh, the commercially smart, uh, matchmaking between corporates and and in, uh, startups, and startups essentially are are, uh, are manifestations of good ideas because it's ideas that people actually are passionate about. So, so they cannot be bad ideas because the team is at least passionate about them. And then uh, better ideas uh, have been vetted and and, and somehow financed. And then the, the the best ideas, I think, are the ideas where where they um, where they get customers. Uh, now, corporates and are are not good at buying from from uh, from startups. They're you know worried about the quality. They're worried about liability. They're worried about all kinds of things. And and so so what we are are conceiving is this type of of concept of agile purchasing where you actually buy in small sprints and uh, and instead of of uh, of committing for for uh, for a lot for a long time you 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 buy in small increments and as as trust gets gets uh, built uh, more uh, more commitment in terms of finance can be made and Coupling that with with a pool of of uh, of freelancers and individual contributors. So the other big trend is is that that the the world uh, has seen a, an enormous growth of individual contributors, but but their challenge is always where to find customers. So then, as as, as if if vertical connect as as a. Uh, a matchmaker here, and we have some 150, 50 uh, mentors that uh, help the startups, and and then once there is business, can then act as as consultants and and added brains and hands in uh, in realizing those. So this is this sort of new new model of innovation that I'm I'm working on, and it's it's still work in progress, but we've been. Been now, you know, two and a half years at it, and and have reviewed some 1,100 startups from 50 countries, and selected uh, um, 40 of them to our our uh, four-month program, and and uh, and it's it's been fantastic to see these ideas mature and grow, and and uh, and and having a team. Team, which which basically had no no investor, and then landing a, a sort of seven or six figure figure deals uh, with with big big pharma companies. That uh, that's a sort of a testament of of that we're onto something.
0: When do you think those relationships, as you're describing them, between startups and corporates are at their healthiest? Um, because as you say that there's interest on on both sides you can address certain needs you know from both sides of that equation um, but as you sort of extrapolate that out into the future you know, where do you think it it leads? Is it something which ultimately is about sort of building a gradual path to acquisition for those startups, finding them the right corporate partner to, to buy them out for the long term? Is it about you know, continuing a series of expanding partnerships between one startup and maybe a number of corporates that can help them get their, their product to market? You know, when do you think those relationships really thrive?
1: Well, well the, the, the good news is, is I have also empirical experience of that myself. So, so uh, my my biggest effort and and where I'm spending most time is is a business called Koru K O R U, and um, and one can find that at korulab.com, uh, and that's a, a wearable uh, platform. So, so my my co-founder uh, uh, created an incredibly small UI graphics engine that. Uh, is is totally unique in the marketplace that it's the only declarative UI engine that can run on a on a Cortex M4 which means that you can separate the the UI uh, creation completely from the logic creation or the business logic which means that designers can then actually build the real interface they don't build demos or simulations but they build the real thing and um, and and then they can run that on target hardware and and that allows them then to 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 do many many more cycles of their interface than has been traditionally possible when when you uh, when you make a, a product with, with C or C++.
0: And is this something where the, the partnerships you have had um, have helped you to, to achieve that? Management, when they create a product,
1: you know, the management will uh, will either tell the designers to come up with something amazing or the designers have take initiative and, and come up with something amazing. They show it and, and, and uh, sell it pitch it to management and they get all excited and it gets demonstrated in PowerPoints or some flash demos or sketch demos or Flinto demos. Uh, and, um, and then the management gives, gives the engineers, a, 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 you know, profitability target and a business case. And, uh, and that then boils down into a bomb. Uh, so the bill of material. And, and these are inherently in conflict. And to solve the conflict, you need something like product management, and uh, and if uh, product management isn't good at the, the job, you know, then either the, the product is lackluster, you know, or it's too expensive, or or, or you know, worst case, both. And and so uh, so our platform goes and and, and can help solve this. Uh, equation and 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 then by having selected the focus of wearables i almost feel like i'm sort of back at the start of my career uh, making and 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 helping to build small interfaces but because that was what phones were all about in the beginning but now controlling the whole whole software stack and And that allows us then to 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 get that performance which is is inherent in a good good uh, uh, you know piece of software
0: and within wearables because th- this is an area which fascinates me as well and we've we've talked about it in a few previous episodes of of the podcast Where do you think the big untapped opportunities is is there a convergence here in your mind between the things that you're doing in that space of of health and wearables do you see that as being the big area of, of shared opportunity or are there other spaces which you think might be interesting for wearable devices too so well i have i have two two answers uh the the
1: first answer is is in something i call aspirational electronics so aspirational electronics is what fashion is is so fashion is, is by nature aspirational. So, so you, 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 um, you, you pump up the price with uh, emotion and feeling. And, uh, and I think that can happen to, to electronics, um, provided that the masters of it, namely the brands, get to play uh, with the tools that they're familiar with which is not technology uh, and software etc so we have to lower the barrier of entry for for uh, for brands to to engage and and we did that on a very very fundamental level by calling the company koru which means jewelry in finnish you know so so we we cannot stand behind you know, we we can't hide behind our brand because if, if, you know, we say that that our company means jewelry in Finnish, then it has to be beautiful. Our software has to be beautiful. We have to empower beautiful products. Then the second thing is is that uh, once the the computer uh, is in contact with the human skin, then uh, we open up for all kinds of new use cases. And, and that's where, where my interest for mHealth uh, started back in, in 2012, and, uh, and and now having reviewed and looked and worked with with uh, all kinds of, of players in that space, I'm I'm ever more convinced that that mHealth uh, will be this this uh, uh, Western's world. Uh, you know, equivalent of of what the, uh, uh, acupuncture and and acupressure, uh, you know, has been to to the Asian culture for for you know five millennia. So we have to 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 create something that allows us to proactively assess our life in three. Uh, sensor generations and and its generation is sort of 18 to to 20 months we will be at fidelity where where we can actually predict proactively things like an heart attack
0: so do you see anyone out there in the market at the moment who you think has arrived at the right sort of combination of form factor an experience design to be able to tap into that opportunity because while we've had smart watches for a while it feels like you know they haven't quite fulfilled their, their you know exponential growth potential um in a way which assures us they're going to be here for, for a long time to stay you know what could come next i think that
1: the, the wrist per se is a great real estate for for um, for short simple interactions so I don't think that will go away, but but once we have sensors, where where uh, where somebody with with uh, cardio problems, with uh, diabetes, uh, with uh, epilepsy, or if these people uh, or people who are, who are sort of generally interested in their health can have an effortless way to 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 track. Uh, there um, uh, and 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 proactively, you know, notify them of of anomalies. So I, I often think of it a little bit like the integration of the GPS into mobile phone. It deleted the concept uh, of being lost by humans. You know, when when I was young and, and I was living in in London back in 19... Uh, uh, 19- I don't know, 92, 93, 94, 94, let's say, something like that, uh, and I was using an, an uh, Apple Newton with, uh, with the timeout guide, and and that had a map, and, and then you sort of could navigate around London with that, and then you sort of like, okay, take a left on that, street, and then walk, you know, until you get to this corner, and then, uh, so, so that was a sort of marvelous feeling of, of, of not being lost, and and it took, you know, 20 years for that to become uh, uh, an, 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 of course, obvious thing that, of course, you know, you can look where you are on, on, uh, on your phone and, and, and never be lost. So I think we'll be able to, to conceptually delete, you know, the, the concept of a heart attack. And once we are, are at that level of fidelity, then uh, these type of objects are going to be worn by by everyone. But still the timing is, is, is some years away and and, and in order to, to get to that fidelity, a lot of people have to grind at the problem hard uh, because every little you know piece of every line of code has to be you know rewritten a, ten hundred times to get to that type of, of fidelity. Every component has to be redesigned ten times. And uh, and somebody's got to do that work.
0: Now look, Krishna, no, I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of our time together for the show, um, but I did have one final question for you, which is something I ask a lot of people who've been on the show. Um, and in your case, I guess it's I'm particularly intrigued to, to hear the answer because you've already had the opportunity to be present uh, during the growth of, you know, a bunch of different, but related, very interesting businesses over the course of your career. But when you look to the future, uh, is there anything within this space that you haven't had a chance to do yet that you would be keen to try? Yeah. Uh... I
1: I am, I am incredibly interested in trying to to help merge uh, fashion and technology. I think there's an enormous opportunity there and, and uh, but, but it's it's two, two cultures that that really don't uh, think alike and and, and, and so, so we have to have you know b- bridge builders have to emerge, to to help them uh, or help that convergence to take place. But that's something I'm I'm incredibly excited about.
0: Well thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you. Maric. It's been and, and, great, and great to catch up.
1: Likewise and, and it's great that you're you're doing this and, and, and do let me know if, if there's something I can help with. And thank you very much for, for the audience also too. To tune in to to this podcast and listen listen to us.
0: Thanks, Christian. Well, that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. We've been getting some wonderful feedback from you all, uh, including some great suggestions for future guests. Um, Do please keep them coming. Do please keep in touch. Uh, You can drop us an email at designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or we are at mexfeed on Twitter. Don't forget to share a link to the show with any of your friends who you think might be interested. And we will be back soon with another episode for you. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.